Exodus 32, verse 1, to Exodus 33, verses 6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it in the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth throughout the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Uh, please leave your Bibles open to Exodus 32. You will need it as we go through. Why don't we pray and ask for God's help as we do that? Oh, Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to have your word open in our hands. Father, we need you to open our hearts and minds, and so we pray that you would be kind to us and indeed do that so that we might understand what you are saying in this passage and that we might change and repent to live more in line with what it says to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can you guys just imagine how great the last few weeks have been for Israel by the time you get to this passage in Exodus 32? These guys have been in the very presence of God around Mount Sinai. They have seen God with their own eyes. They have heard God speaking with their own ears. They have been gathered around Mount Sinai in the very kind of immediate presence of God. That is amazing. But now God has called Moses up to the top of the mountain where God is currently giving him the plans for the tabernacle, the building that God is planning to dwell in in the midst of Israel. And Israel themselves, they're kind of left down the bottom of the mountain without Moses, without God, without his kind of immediate presence. Forty days goes past with Moses and God somewhere up the top of the mountain and Israel down the bottom. So it's been 40 days for them without seeing or hearing God speak. And Israel, they start to get worried that God is no longer in their presence. And so they decide to make God present with them again. But look at how they do it. Chapter 2, uh, sorry, chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So 
they want God's presence amongst them again and to, to go before them. And so Aaron goes and collects all the gold earrings from people and he, he melts it down and he kind of forms it into a blob. And then he starts to shape it and fashion it into a calf. Not meaning the bottom half of someone's leg, meaning a, a cow, like a young bull, something like that. And then he puts this golden calf in front of everyone and he says, Here, O Israel, here are your gods. He is back in your presence. He's amongst you ready to go before you again. Now, we might kind of laugh at how naive that sort of seems, but that was actually a very common practice back in the ancient Near East. Uh, Many nations around Israel would make little statues, little idols of their country's God that kind of represented God's presence amongst them. And one of the most common animals that was used to represent their gods was a calf or a bull because calves and bulls, they are big and they are strong just like their country's God. And so that's what Israel do. They're missing the presence of God as God is kind of up on top of the mountain with Moses somewhere. And so Israel try to solve it by making an idol and putting it in their midst and then say, here is your God, he is with us, he is amongst us again and ready to go before us. That is so terrible. That is so terrible because if you were here last week, God told them never to do that. Last week, he gave them the Ten Commandments, the commandments that were to govern their life as as God's special people. And the second commandment was, you shall not make an idol and worship it. And Israel, they enthusiastically obey and they said, yes, yes, we will do that. But as soon as God leaves and as soon as he goes up to the top of the mountain and disappears with Moses, they break that command and they make an idol and they worship it. Israel are like that kid that kind of tells you to your face that they're going to do the right thing. But as soon as you leave the room and leave them alone, they just happily go and do the opposite. That's how Israel are treating their God, their saviour. Uh, But to be fair to them, it's actually worth noting that they don't do this deliberately. They actually don't realise that they're doing anything wrong. Did you notice from the passage why it is they don't think that they're doing anything wrong? Uh, It's because they haven't done this as some kind of way to, to abandon Yahweh and to worship some pagan cow god. No, Israel have done this to actually worship Yahweh, their god. The golden calf, it's not a representation of some other god. It's actually their representation of their god, Yahweh. See, have a look at verse 4. Aaron took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. So they don't say, these are the gods of the nations who are going to adopt in Yahweh's absence. No, they say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Yahweh is their God. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt. This is actually an idol of Yahweh. Now, don't get too hung up on the fact that um, our Bibles say gods in plural instead of God in singular. Your Bible probably has a footnote that points out that you could actually translate it God singular. So maybe Aaron is saying, uh, this is your God singular, who brought you out of Egypt, and maybe that makes some sense because he does only make one calf, not uh, several of them, Uh, but, you know, there's some problems with that. So the whole kind of plural gods thing is a little bit tricky, but, and I'm not quite sure exactly how to take it, except to say 
that however we understand it, whether they're kind of thinking multiple gods or one god, it's very clear that this is their representation of Yahweh. This calf, it represents Yahweh. And you can tell that because of what happens next in verse 5. Look at this, verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the calf god, to some foreign god. No, he says, to the Lord. And when you see Lord in capitals, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, God's personal name. So Aaron builds an altar in front of the calf to sacrifice to Yahweh because that calf represents Yahweh, their God. And that's why Israel don't think they're actually doing anything wrong because in their mind, they're actually worshipping their God, Yahweh. They haven't replaced him with some foreign God. No, no, they've not replaced him. They've just reimagined him a little bit. But here's the thing. To reimagine someone is to actually replace them. And you can see that in, that's how God takes it. They, God takes it that they have totally replaced him. Look at what God says in verse 7. Chapter 32, verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Now look at this bit. They have bowed down to me. No, they've bowed down to it. They've sacrificed to it. Israel thinks that they're bowing down and sacrificing to the Lord, Yahweh, and Yahweh just looks at it and says, and says they're worshipping it, not him, it. To, to reimagine God is to actually replace him. Let me try and illustrate how that works. Uh, so I'm married, I've got three kids. Uh, let's say my wife goes out for a whole day and while she's out, I kind of miss her presence with me and the kids and so, uh, you know, kind of like Israel, I'm missing God's presence up on the mountain and so I take a piece of paper and I draw on it and I say to my three kids, ah, hero household Horgan, here is your mother and here is my wife. And I start relating to this piece of paper with her drawing on it as if it were actually her. But when she gets home, imagine if I just ignore her and just keep relating to that piece of paper as if it were actually her. And so, you know, I ask the piece of paper with her drawing on it, how was your day? And I make a cup of tea and I go to take it over to her, but at last moment I just kind of give it to the drawing. And then I make the drawing dinner and I sit down to dinner with uh, the drawing and I tell the drawing that I love her, but I totally ignore my wife, Vicky. At some point I think Vicky is going to say to me, why are you ignoring me? Why are you treating me so badly? And can you imagine me saying... Oh, I'm not ignoring you. And then I pick up the piece of paper and I say, I've made you a cup of tea. I've made you dinner. I sat down with you. I told you that I love you. And Vicky says, that's not me. And I say, of course it is. Look, there's your head, there's your arms and, and your legs. That, that is the likeness of you. That's kind of what Israel have, have actually done to God. They've made a piece of art, an, an idol that captures something of Yahweh and they're actually treating it as if it was Yahweh himself. But to make an idol of God, to, to do that, something has to, something always gets lost in translation. The image of the calf or the bull, it captures something of God's power and his size. 
says absolutely nothing about his love. It says nothing about his compassion. It says nothing about his holiness or his righteousness. They've reimagined him as a bull, but to reimagine him is to actually replace him. Now, we might be sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, that is actually really terrible what they've done. But actually, I'm feeling pretty comfortable because I don't do anything like that. I don't reimagine God into the shape of something that he's not. I've never fashioned an idol into like an eagle and said, you know, this is my God, Yahweh. I've never done anything like that. And I imagine that's probably true for us. But have you ever said something like this? Well, I see what God says about himself in the Bible at this point, but actually, I don't kind of like that. I don't think God is really like that. I like to think that God doesn't judge anyone. I like to think that God accepts people no matter what religion they're from. That is to reimagine God differently to how he has revealed himself in Scripture. To reimagine him is to actually replace him. That's what Israel have done. They have said, I like to think God is like this calf. They have reimagined how God should be kind of in their mind and to their way of thinking. For them it was a calf. For us it might be something else. It might be looking at what God says about himself in the Bible and thinking, no, no, I like to think God is more like this. That is to reimagine him. And to reimagine him is to replace him. And it rightly angers God if we do that. Just like it should rightly anger my wife if I'm to reimagine her. But that is what we do anytime we ever find ourselves saying, no, I don't, I don't like that. I like to think God is more like this. That's what Israel have done with the calf and it provokes God to anger. Look at God's response in verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I'll make you into a great nation. Israel, they replace God with their own version of him and it angers God so much that, that he actually threatens to destroy them. Now at this point, if you're anything like me, there's this little feeling inside you, there's this little voice that says... I'm really uncomfortable with how God acts here. I'm uncomfortable with the way that God kind of reacts. And I like to think that God wouldn't actually do that. I like to think that God wouldn't judge. And hang on a minute. Didn't we just reimagine God if we said that? We've just reimagined him the way that we think he should be, the way that we think he should act. We've kind of shaped him into our own version, a version that kind of doesn't mind if people replace him and reject him. That's what Israel have done. And Israel should rightly perish for rejecting God. God is the source of life in this universe. He created this universe. He sustains this universe. He is the one who is sustaining your pulse right now as we sit in UWA. God is the source of life. You can't reject the source of life and live any more than you could reject oxygen and keep thinking that you can live and breathe. But That is what Israel have done. If you think of replacing my wife with a hand-drawn image as a bad way to treat somebody that loves you, what Israel have done to God is terrible. 
God has just rescued them from slavery to Pharaoh. He has set his love and his kindness on them. He has adopted them as his special people. And Israel respond by reimagining him, by rejecting him and by replacing him with a version that they think represents how he should actually be. And it rightly provokes God to anger. They have rejected him, they have replaced him, and they're about to feel the consequence of what they've done when something quite amazing happens. Moses comes and mediates for them. Moses intercedes for them. Moses goes to God and actually pleads Israel's case to God to turn God's anger and sin away from them. And Moses doesn't hold back in the way that he mediates and intercedes. Have a look at him in verse 11. It's quite incredible. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and don't let disaster fall on your people. And he keeps going. Moses mediates for Israel. He intercedes for them. He he keeps going and he builds up this case of all these reasons why God should not wipe them out. He appeals to God's reputation amongst the nations. He appeals to the promises God made to grow them into a large nation. He asks God to actually change his mind about wiping Israel out. And then I think one of the most incredible things happens. That's, what, that's exactly what happens. God appears to change his mind because Moses interceded. Look at verse 14. It's stunning. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he'd threatened. And at this point, you might rightly think, how on earth does that happen? How does a human being, a finite, small human being like Moses, seemingly change God's mind? Isn't God sovereign? Isn't God all-powerful? Isn't God in control of everything? Doesn't God have this plan for all of history which he is working out? If that's the case, how does Moses apparently change God's mind? Well, of course God is sovereign. Of course God is in control of everything, including putting Moses here at this point and for this purpose. It's not just good luck that Moses just happens to be in the right place at the right time to save Israel. No, God has put him there. We have seen for 32 chapters that God is putting him here. Why? Not just to save Israel on the mountain, but to actually teach Israel that a sinful people, if they're ever going to have a relationship with a holy God, they are going to need a mediator. God has orchestrated this whole event with Moses to teach Israel that they are going to need a mediator. Uh, I'm a parent, and I quite often teach my kids certain things through creating certain events and experiences. Um, You don't just teach people just by speaking. Uh, You often create certain experiences to do it. Uh, Last winter, for example, when I was walking my kids to school in the morning, it was about 10 degrees. It was really cold. It was kind of very windy. And as we're getting ready to leave the house... I say to them, hey, it's pretty cold outside, it's very windy, it's like 10 degrees, you should put on a jumper. No, no, Dad, I don't need a jumper. 
I kept saying, it's pretty cold, man. You should really wear a jumper. No, no, Dad, I don't need a jumper. So we start walking to school with no jumper on. It is freezing. About halfway, it's only like a five-minute trip, but about halfway, he goes quiet. And I look down, he's got his arms like this as he's walking along. He's Because it's freezing. He is cold, as I knew he would be, and as I had planned and wanted him to be. Because it was at this point that I reached into my winter jacket and took out his jumper, which I'd been storing in there, and I kind of nuzzled it into my face, and I was like, oh, it's so warm. Would you like your jumper? Of course, he took his jumper. There was some sense that I purposely created that event to teach him that when it's 10 degrees and you're going to walk to school and Dad says you need a jumper, you need a jumper. Now, he made certain free will choices. He chose not to take his jumper, yet in what I call my overarching parenting plan, I had kind of manufactured that event to sort of teach him that when it's 10 degrees and Dad says you need a jumper, you need a jumper. I taught him through this event. Now, in the smallest kind of broken human way, just in the smallest way, I think that gives you a glimpse into what's happening here in Exodus. Moses and Israel, they are making free will choices. Israel chose to sin. Moses chose to intercede. But it's part of God's sovereign plan, which overarches all of history, to teach Israel the most important thing they are going to need to know if they are ever going to be God's special people. And the most important thing they need to grasp right now, if they're ever going to live out life as God's special people, is that for a sinful people to relate to a holy and righteous God, they are going to need a mediator. This event, it teaches them that they're going to need a mediator. But, ah, that's not the only thing it teaches them. It also teaches them that they're going to need a better mediator than Moses. Because although Moses mediates and intercedes for them and actually stops God from destroying them and wiping them out, Moses cannot completely talk Israel out of God's anger. So although God does not destroy Israel and wipe them away, he does punish them. 3,000 people die by the sword. And so although Moses is able to mediate and save Israel from destruction, Moses cannot completely mediate God's anger away. This event, it's teaching them that they need a mediator, yes, but it also teaches them that they're going to need a better one than Moses. He's inadequate for the job. And you can really see that Moses is inadequate as a mediator for these people by what happens next in the story. Because after 3,000 people die for rejecting and replacing God, Moses senses that more mediation is required and so he goes to God to further mediate for Israel, but he can't do it. Look at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, Oh, you have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. That's a reference to blotting Moses' life out. 
Moses goes to God and he says, look, I get what they have done. I get they've rejected you. I get they've reimagined you. I get they've totally replaced you. I get they should die as they have rejected you as the source of life. And so, take my life as payment for theirs. I will die in their place so they can live. But Moses, he totally shows Israel exactly what a mediator is supposed to do. A mediator is supposed to do everything in their power to bring them a relationship of peace with God. But Moses also shows them that he's not up for the task, he's inadequate because he doesn't actually have the power to offer his life for Israel's and God doesn't take up his offer. Look at verse 33. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot them out of my book. So God does not accept Moses' offer because he can't. Moses can't give his life as a ransom for Israel's because Moses has got his own sin and guilt to pay for. Sure, Moses wasn't involved in the golden calf incident, but he's not guiltless. He's not sinless. And so he can't offer his life in place for Israel's. Moses can only offer his life in place for his own guilt and his own sin. He is not actually qualified to be the mediator that Israel desperately need right now. And this passage, this reading, it ended with Israel feeling the sad consequence of their sin and not having an adequate mediator to bring them to God. It's so sad. Because this passage ends with God not able to actually dwell in Israel's presence. So have a look at chapter 33, verse 3. Here's how this reading ended. God says, chapter 33, verse 3, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and nobody put on any ornaments. The sad consequence of Israel's sin and not having a mediator that can actually fix the problem is God cancels his plan to move in and live with them. He says to them, you guys go up to the promised land, but I am not coming with you. You can go alone because of your sin and your your rejection of me and your rebellion will always put you in danger of my right wrath. And suddenly the whole movement in Exodus that we've been watching develop now for about nine or ten weeks, that whole movement in Exodus of God creating a special relationship with these people and gathering them together so that he can live with them, that whole movement suddenly stops. And it starts to fall apart because Israel don't have someone who can appropriately and adequately mediate them and their sin to God. On one hand, as Moses interceded for them to stop God from destroying Israel, he shows them that they need a mediator. But at the same time, because he can't offer his life to completely and perfectly mediate them back to God, it shows them their need for a better mediator than Moses, one that can offer their life for theirs. In other words, this whole event is getting Israel ready for the coming of the perfect and the greatest mediator that God is planning to send his people so that they might dwell with God. In other words, this passage is getting God's people ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the perfect and the great mediator that God has planned to send his people. 
We're only in the second book of the Bible. We're 1,500 years away from the life of Jesus, but God's plan has always been to send Jesus to perfectly mediate God's sinful people to God. Even right back here in the second book of the Bible. And 1,500 years after this event, God's plan for the perfect mediator comes to fruition in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because where Moses couldn't offer his life to God, to mediate God's sinful people, Jesus, being perfect, being sinless, and being God in the flesh, could offer his life. And that is great news for this lecture theatre full of people. Because just like Israel, all of us stand condemned before God because of our sin. We have broken God's laws. In many ways in our hearts we have rejected him. I don't know about you, but many times my own heart has reimagined him differently in in the shape of the own image that I think he should be in. All of us have rejected him and all of us stand under his wrath and at the end of our lives all of us will stand in front of him and all of us actually deserve eternal death, separated from God. But... God in his kindness has sent us the mediator that we actually need but don't deserve. Jesus, who gave his life for ours. First Timothy puts it this way, it's on screen. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, who gave his life, who died as a ransom for all people. Jesus is the one true and perfect and great mediator that Moses was preparing God's people for. And right now, in in some amazing way, Jesus is actually at the right hand of God in heaven, interceding for us, pleading our case to God, kind of like Moses did on the mountain where he interceded and he pleaded Israel's case for God to turn God's anger away. The difference is that Jesus is the full and perfect mediator that Moses was just a simple, inadequate, but beautiful shadow of. Because Jesus, unlike Moses, because of his guiltlessness, because of his sinlessness, because he is God, was actually able to do the thing that Moses never could, and that is offer his life as a ransom for God's people. All of us here should rightly stand under God's wrath for rejecting him, for replacing him, for reimagining him, for breaking his laws. And at the end of our lives, we should reasonably actually be condemned and cast out of his presence. But God in his kindness gave us the perfect, most qualified and most gorgeous mediator we could ever have hoped for, his son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to close tonight by asking you a question. Is he your mediator? Have you asked Jesus to mediate for you? Have you asked him to intercede, to turn God's anger at your sin away? Because unless you do that, unless we do that, we stand condemned. As 1 Timothy said, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for all people. There is one and one only mediator. So if you haven't asked Jesus to be 
your mediator, to intercede for you, I'd really encourage you to think about that. Uh, And if that's something that you want to keep thinking about or if that's something that you actually want to do, I would love you to go to speak to Jeff or one of the other uh, leaders at this church or come to me after the service and we can speak about that because God has given us one perfect mediator who is willing and perfectly able to intercede for every one of us. Praise be to God for that. Amen.